Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It sure has been a while since I was on the air last with you guys, but I didn't want you all to think that I had forgotten about all of you, my faithful listeners. I've had some things that have come up, but nothing um, that would be alarming. It's just, uh, you know, part of life when things come up. Uh, sometimes other things just have to take precedent. And as I've said before, and I'll say it again, that there is more to life than podcasting. Although it is a little side hobby of mine, it has been uh, quite a um, joyous adventure, and it will continue to remain that way. But uh, for this uh, podcast um, episode of Shays' Rebellion, The American Revolution's Final Battle by Leonard L. Richards, this is going to be our final uh, podcast episode for this um, book, Shays' Rebellion. And for those of you who have been listening to my podcast uh, series on Shays' Rebellion, I would strongly recommend reading uh, this book. While it is not a it's not a 300-page book. It's um, close to 175 pages at best. It is very well worth uh, reading, and um, author Leonard L. Richards, in my opinion, did a phenomenal job in uh, teaching a story that uh, has largely been ignored by um, many in the uh, education profession. I'm not saying that to be ugly, but sometimes um, the school curriculums don't always um, teach the stories right, so that's where I feel that people like me can come in and um, modify those uh, matters to where you all, my fellow listeners, are getting a better appreciation for the true story. So what is there left to discuss that has not already been discussed in Shays' Rebellion? Well, this title that um, I'm going to focus on, which will be, a comp- will be part climax, climactic, or I should say part climax or epilogue, is what's known as reverberation, or in this case, reverberations. Most of you probably don't know what reverberation means. I didn't know what the word itself meant until I uh, read the book. So our first lead-off question is going to be the following. What does reverberation itself mean? Well, for one, I'll tell you this much, it has multiple meanings, but in the sense of um, what we've been discussing, you know, a rebellion, um, an attack against the state of Massachusetts, does reverberation have a negative meaning in this case or a positive? Uh, I would say negative. We have been discussing about an infamous rebellion from the post American Revolutionary War era, and given that we have been discussing about an infamous rebellion, reverberation in this sense would pertain to continuous effects or repercussions that have long-term negative consequential impacts. So it's bad enough that um, men took up arms against the state of Massachusetts. Is it fair to say that the other 12 states are fair game for uh, rebellion? Yes. And Massachusetts wasn't the only state that endured its fair, sh- that endured rebellion. Um, other states, um, even Virginia, endured uh, rebellion during this time. Uh, for example, um, Pennsylvania's rebelled. I mean, there was rebellion everywhere. So if rebellion is everywhere, then there is a problem. Not just a problem with the states, but a problem with the existing government, which we will um, talk more about. We've already talked about it from previous podcasts, but it's got more uh, profound uh, significance now that we're into the final uh, segment of Shays' Rebellion. Did the regulation movement in Massachusetts achieve its intended purpose, or rather I should say mission? No. Although six courts got closed temporarily, the movement as a whole failed due to a lack of solid leadership, considering many men throughout western Massachusetts had shown or rather displayed neutrality. Uh, Remember um, what uh, General Benjamin Lincoln and one of his uh, top um, aides um, had um, mutually agreed upon from the previous podcast? 
they both saw in their eyes that the uh, reason why this movement failed on the part of the insurgents was because they did not have true uh, leaders. In other words, they were leaders who represented only the town that they um, hailed from, but they could only, um, what do you call it, they could only um, deliver propaganda for their hometown. They could not sell their propaganda to uh, neighboring towns or towns north and south of them who did not have as big of a stake and therefore chose to remain neutral. So yes, six courts got closed, four being in the west, in the western part of the state, one in Concord outside of Boston, and the other one being in uh, Taunton, uh, being south of Boston. So while yes, six courts were temporarily closed, that may have been the biggest achievement. But if you ask me, what do you think would have been the biggest achievement of them all if the uh, insurgents had gotten their way? How about seizing the federal arsenal in Springfield? You know, the arsenal didn't belong to Massachusetts. It belonged to the federal government under the Articles of Confederation. But if the insurgents had seized the federal arsenal, um, they would have had every munition in their hand, not just in their hand, but to distribute to um, people who did not um, have a voice in their government on one hand, yes, being deprived of a voice was one thing, but to give these men munitions from an arsenal, that's scary upon itself right there. How else are you going to restore order when it gets that way? It's just not possible. So what happened to Daniel Shays after he returned to Massachusetts from hiding in exile in Vermont? Did he die shortly after returning to Massachusetts from Vermont? Uh, no, he didn't. It turns out in 1788, he got pardoned. He was a part of that amnesty um, matter. In other words, amnesty meaning mass pardon to um, hundreds of individuals who have uh, committed wrongdoings, in this case against the state of Massachusetts. They had to take an oath of allegiance. They had to... Um, put down their arms once and for all, and by putting down your arms, that is, that you swore allegiance to the state and would no longer take up arms against it. Now, interesting enough for Daniel Shays, um, it was while in Vermont he lost his farm, but he later earned a pension, and what is a, a pension, folks? How about a retirement plan? from the federal government for his five years of service to the Continental Army from 1775 to 1780, which he had performed without pay. And remember, folks, many of our soldiers who fought in the American Revolutionary War, they were promised pay, but very few of them got it. And we all should know that because if they had gotten their pay and paper money, it would have had no value. What was the greater value? making the ultimate sacrifice to not only be free from England, but to liberate our fellow people from no longer having to live under a tyrannical form of government. Although, in the post-revolutionary war era, the Articles of Confederation has not been that savior form of government, and we'll find out more here shortly. But as for Daniel Shays, Sadly, uh, the last few years of his life uh, were not uh, very kind to him. He, lived, he was forced to live in poverty. He became a heavy drinker. He used his pension, which included basically working a small parcel of land. <clears throat> Does anybody want to take a guess at what, in what year he passed away? Did he pass away in 1812? Did he pass away in 1800 or 1825? The answer is choice C, 1825. He lived to be 78 years old, which was very unheard of uh, for that time. He is uh, buried in uh, Sparta, New York, which is in uh, Livingston County. To think Daniel Shays died one year before uh, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, whom both um, passed away on July 4, 1826. So it might be fair to say uh, that Maybe, 
just maybe that Daniel Shays could have been one of the very few survivors of Shays' rebellion still alive by the time he passes on. Whereas Daniel Shays landed on the losing side of this conflict, General Benjamin Lincoln emerged victorious in his defense of the Springfield Arsenal. And had it not been for General Benjamin Lincoln, I'm not sure who would have been able to have uh, mustered a solid defense of the Springfield Arsenal to where it would have been uh, kept out of uh, the insurgents' hands. However, his overall image as military commander was greatly enhanced to where um, whatever past failures had happened, like surrendering an entire army at Charleston from the American Revolution uh, from 1780, that became a distant memory. For those of you who've been uh, listening to the series, um, when we first learned about General Benjamin Lincoln, we learned that he um, took on a uh, mission that many felt he should not have done, where he was already outnumbered against the British at Charleston in May 1780. You can't fault the man for at least trying to go head to toe with the mightiest uh, empire, but given that he was outnumbered from he was outnumbered three to five thousand men it was probably not the wisest choice to go um, head to toe and he ultimately lost Charleston and not only did he lose the city he was forced to surrender all of his uh, men they had to give up their arms and many of them had to take oaths proclaiming their neutrality and not taking a side period so that debacle seven years earlier um, while, yes, it may have remained in, his, in the um, eyes of uh, skeptics, as a result of his um, successful defense of the Springfield Arsenal, whatever happened seven years earlier, that's now on an archived shelf. From 1780 to 1786, the Massachusetts legislature had gone to great lengths in reforming state, the state debt problem. But by doing so and paying interest with specie, what changed in the aftermath of Shays' rebellion? And if those of you who need a reminder on what specie is, that's the um, hard, hard currency like gold or gold coins to pay debt off. Of course, very few people have specie to um, not only invest with or just to have, but just to even pay a debt off. But what ha changed in the aftermath of Shays' rebellion? How about this? Come 1787, with new governor John Hancock on board, the legislature passed a measure to temporarily halt all outstanding debts, which also included cutting direct taxes. And what are direct taxes? Direct taxes are those taxes for which were paid directly to the government. Indirect taxes no longer went to speculators. The speculators were the individual um, investors who had um, huge stakes at, on the line in terms of investing in um, land schemes, for example. The indirect taxes were those taxes that were passed on or shifted to another person or group by the person or business that owed the tax themselves. So in other words, Direct taxes are the taxes going directly to the government, but indirect taxes were primarily um, on an individual level. So revenues instead from indirect taxes would go towards paying general state expenses. So this is a complete overhaul that John Hancock, or rather I should say Governor John Hancock, has gone about um, establishing, but it's one that it may not erase everything overnight, but it's going to greatly modify uh, matters to where people won't feel so burdened about paying taxes, but know that there are other options to pay taxes besides uh, specie. After all, uh, from the previous podcast, we learned that John Hancock was willing to accept paper money, even though he knew it didn't have any value, he was still letting those who were poor Give, them, give him the paper money as a way of saying, hey, we're giving you something to erase our debt, even though it may not have the same face value as hard currency. 
New state leadership allowed for backcountry towns to focus on paying off personal debts as well as collecting back taxes. And what are back taxes, folks? They are those taxes that hadn't been entirely paid when originally due from a previous year. So in other words, think of back taxes as taxes that are still outstanding. They um, have not been uh, paid in full or they are basically in what we might even think of as pending status where um, there has, there's not a definitive timeline for the actual payoff date. Now, prior to and after Shays' rebellion, did the federal government under the fledgling Articles of Confederation have any power to tax? The answer is no. This greatly impacted note holders and speculators whose paper monies were in great disarray. How were they in great disarray? Well, they lacked full face value coverage. So, you know, money itself in terms of loss of face value is not confined to one class of people. Even those who have access to greater connections, meaning ability to um, establish easier access to credit or easier um, access to um, a, a larger money supply, they are also struggling too because the money they have does not have the same face value as it previously had before. So 1781, which is also the same year that the British surrendered, the British surrender of Yorktown took place, most notably in, on October 19th of 1781. It's also the same year that the Articles of Confederation go into effect. And despite the British surrender at Yorktown, Congress, meaning this fledgling federal government under the Articles of Confederation is fledgling itself. How so? Well, Congress does not have any proper means to enforce a peace treaty over the western lands that were ceded by the British. And what are those western lands? Well, western lands, can, they can, it can be vague. But when I think of Western lands, I often think of the uh, Northwest Territory of Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, Illinois, Wisconsin. Uh, Western lands could also mean uh, what we now know as present-day Kentucky, Tennessee. So we don't have any treaty, any um, process to go about in, um, ratifying treaty to proposing treaties. You know, we're pretty much up a creek here, folks. How about paying off the nation's debts, lacking the power of taxation? We don't even have courts, and we don't have, and, not, and by not only having courts, we don't have any ways to go about enforcing laws as well as treaties. So if you don't have any of that stuff, how can you even have a government to begin with on a national level that would have respect from its subjects below who are doing the complete opposite. They, those subjects are actually running everything. 13 separate entities, 13 states. And who's to say that all 13 states are, are unified all the time either? And speaking of that, here's a good one for you all. Did changing the Articles of Confederation require consent from all 13 state legislatures? That is the entire a fledgling document. Yes, prior to Shays's rebellion, many leaders like Alexander Hamilton, who would become our nation's eventual um, first uh, Secretary of the Treasury, Alexander Hamilton of New York had been advocating tirelessly for overhauling the Articles of Confederation, which meant eliminating the state's power. In other words, in Alexander Hamilton's eyes, the states cannot supersede the federal government. Yes, I'm sure over time he will eventually realize that, yes, there are some powers that should be reserved to the states, but the most formidable powers are the ones that must be given to a national government so that there is not any further conflict or further events like Shays' Rebellion that would create a national 
crisis to what, where, what, where our country will either survive as one or will dissolve as one. So basically for Alexander Hamilton, he is seeking out a strong centralized government. And Alexander Hamilton is not the only one, folks, who is uh, taking this very seriously. How about men like Henry Knox, whom was uh, George Washington's top, um, chief, one of his top chiefs from the uh, American Revolutionary War? How about Henry, like Henry Knox, and then you have former governor James Bowden, of whom John Hancock um, replaced, whom John Hancock uh, defeats, but despite Governor James Bowden's um, issues that he had in terms of not maybe being um, compassionate towards those uh, people in western Massachusetts, Governor Bowden, on the other hand, is in the same boat as Alexander Hamilton and Henry Knox. They each agree, especially Bowden and Knox, whom are each from Massachusetts, they agree that the Articles of Confederation needed drastic reforming including officers from the Society of the Cincinnati. You know, that um, prestigious um, group that, is, um, that caters to um, not just so much well, the well-to-do, but to those uh, who served in the top of the line uh, during the American Revolutionary War. So yes, you even have officers from, high-ranking officers from the Society of the Cincinnati who are saying, hey, look, you know, something's got to be done here. And even those people um, have, are thinking to themselves, hey, look, if nothing is done, we are going to become the laughing stock. The rest of the world's going to see us as a laughing stock, and rightfully so. If you want to have allies, you better have a sound government, because if you don't have a sound government, how are you going to have any allies? So, they all know now that the Confederation government has been unable to look after men who fought the American Revolution, as well as not being able to negotiate treaties with foreign nations, and most importantly, lacking money and power to pay off U.S. debt at face value. You know, it's one thing to pay a bill off, but in this case, you're paying debt. We're paying somewhere in the millions folks we're not talking just a couple thousand dollars we're we're looking at millions here we've still got debt to pay back to france you know france lent us money uh because they wanted a piece of um of the action given that um they lost to england in the seven years war and the french had to give up their territory to the british so it's one thing to be an ally and if your ally lends you money well you got to find a way to pay him back so, uh, two years before uh, Governor James Bowden was defeated, of course, all this time I thought J Governor Bowden had um, been ignorant and cocky and was only thinking about the mercantile class. I was wrong, and I'm not afraid to admit it. So, two years before his defeat, what did he propose? Okay. In the spring of 1785, Governor Bowden introduced the idea of having all 13 states come together to improve upon Continental Congress's existing powers. And this idea was supported by a majority of Bostonian merchants. Could this be a precursor, folks, to what will eventually arise two years later in the aftermath of what happened in Shays' Rebellion? Perhaps so. Did this idea of Governor Bowden's go forward? Well, the majority of, of the uh, men in Massachusetts who advocated this uh, were in favor of it. However, there's a small little loophole that does create a backfire. All three Massachusetts congressional delegates thought differently in large part because they believed that tampering with the Articles of Confederation would lead to complete chaos. On one hand, if you were to tamper with an existing document, yes, there is bound to be conflict. There is bound to be some form of chaos. But how about when a rebellion takes place like Shays's Rebellion? Is it fair to say that uh, people's minds would change quickly? If they were smart enough, 
which many of these men were, they would know, hey, um, a, a, bad, a, a, a severe rebellion has taken place that could undermine our nation's existence. So yes, these three uh, delegates, congressional delegates, come 1786, one year later, would change their minds very quickly when Shays' rebellion became a nightmarish reality. That taking up arms against the state in the post-revolutionary war era, yeah, that's uh, very bad. And just as a reminder, folks, just because we had defeated the mightiest empire in the world back in 1781, it didn't mean that the rest of the time between late 1781 and by the time uh, the, the Constitutional Convention, con the delegates convening in Philadelphia for the Constitutional Convention, um, when that took place, it didn't mean that the whole seven-year duration was a peaceful one. It wasn't. Despite General uh, Benjamin Lincoln's forces having successfully routed Luke Day and Daniel Shays, or their Daniel Shays' men at Springfield, rather, I should say, at the Springfield Arsenal, did George Washington still believe that Shays' rebellion posed a great threat to the nation from within? Well, do any of you all truly think that George Washington had every reason to believe that Shays' rebellion posed a great threat to the nation from within? If any of you all don't think so, then something's not right. I'm not saying that to be ugly, but we should also keep in mind about what happened um, five months ago at the Capitol. For those of you all living in the United States and for those of you who live elsewhere around the world and witnessed what happened in Washington, D.C., January 6th of this year, yeah, that would scare a lot of people. I was blown away by it. I mean, this world, as we know, there's a lot of um, uncertainty. There's a lot of... Um, partisanship, there's a lot of um, bickering and rancor, but I never thought it would get to this extreme. But you know what? I was wrong, and I certainly pray to God and hope that it never happens again. I used to think that stuff only happened in other nations, and of course the last time anything like that happened where our capital was in danger of being destroyed for those of you who were with me uh, a year ago when we talked about Steve Vogel's uh, Through the Perilous Fight, the burning of Washington, the Star-Spangled Banner, and the six weeks that saved the nation, yeah, it reminded me of that. Except it wasn't an enemy from overseas. It was an enemy from within. And what do you know? George Washington is very worried about what Shays' rebellion has done, not just not just as an incident itself, but what it has done to the nation from within. He is a, he knows that um, he knows just how bad off the country it currently is currently is under with the Articles of Confederation, including the inadequacies that are tied to it. He saw Shays' rebellion tied directly to this existing fledgling government. So, in other words, he knows that this rebellion just didn't happen overnight. He knows that this rebellion had probably been coming for some time, but it was brought on by as a direct result of the, all the inadequacies under this failing form of government. So he knows that something's got to be done, because if nothing's done about it now, it's going to happen again, and it could be even worse than what has already um, happened. Shays' rebellion was what brought George Washington out of retirement. So let's keep in mind, folks, when he retired after the Treaty of Paris, he stepped down. He was looking forward to returning to the gentleman life, being a farmer, which he loved most, working at Mount Vernon, his um, estate that he inherited from his late half-brother. Let's keep in mind, folks, that George Washington didn't build Mount Vernon on his own. He inherited that from his uh, late half-brother uh, in Lawrence, Washington, whom named Mount Vernon after a uh, British general named Edward Vernon, whom uh, Lawrence had a great deal of respect for. So if any of you all are wondering how Mount Vernon got its name, that's the connection right there. 
So Washington would become the head leader of the Virginia delegation to the Constitutional Convention, as well as accepting the presiding officer um, post. Had Shays' rebellion sent waves of alarm across all 13 states? Yes, considering what had been published in newspapers that impacted men of prominent status from Virginia to Massachusetts. But how can a rebellion like Shays' rebellion impact men of prominent status? Well, look at, look at George Washington, folks. He, he owns a lot of land, not just in Mount Vernon. He owns land in what we now know present-day western Pennsylvania, around Pittsburgh, uh, Duquesne. Um, he also owns land in, um, at one time, he owned some land in Ohio. He owned land in where, what we now know as West Virginia and parts of Maryland. Now, when he marries Martha Dandridge Custis, whom was a widow, when he married her in 1759, he was marrying the wealthiest woman in Virginia. So we must keep in mind that George Washington's land holdings, or in terms of property, is not confined to one area, being Mount Vernon. It is everywhere else that he has connections to, where he made investments, and before uh, separating from uh, England and in, at the time of the American Revolution. So yes, for a prominent landowner like George Washington, this would be a threat because if outsiders are going to rebel, what, what could they have access to? They could have access to other people's property. They could in, encroach on their property without the owner's consent. And perhaps those insurgents not only would um, destroy livestock, they would encourage... Washington, yes, was a slave owner, and when he married Martha, he inherited many of those slaves through her. But what could insurgents do? They, they could always entice the slaves to rebel against their masters. I know that, yes, the world we live in today, there's a lot of bad things that have been going on, but I'm also trying to tell you all, my listeners, that we must also put ourselves in George Washington's footsteps and realize that, hey, yes, I am a man of prominent status, but for rebellions like Shays' rebellion to take place, what if my property holdings were being violated? What if insurgents came and captured people who worked on my plantation? Would, those, would my people who worked on the plantation become... Um, insurgents as well. So this is a matter of national security, not just on the domestic front, but even on a national front too. I mean, they, they could coincide together with one another, but, but this is a matter of national security. What did delegates in Philadelphia agree upon in the aftermath of Shays' rebellion? Do you think they agreed upon more than one thing? Oh, I would say so. For starters, Many of the delegates, maybe not all of them, but a majority of them, they all agreed that there had to be broad governmental powers in times of emergency. Okay, even in times of emergency, that's vague. Of course, we're not talking about natural disasters in 1786, 1787. But when I think of uh, times of emergency, how about trying to put down uprisings like Shays' Rebellion so that future uprisings are not, don't become the new norm. So, for starters, there has to be broad governmental powers in times of emergency where the federal government must have the ability within its domain, or rather I should say jurisdiction, to suppress riotous acts. When I think of riotous acts, how about um, those acts that involve um, insurrections, kind of like what happened on January 6th, um, an insurrection, a failed insurrection took place. It may not have looked like our government was in danger, but there were enough uh, fanatics and lunatics out there who were, who were disgruntled enough to where they would have liked to have seen a possible overthrow. And thank goodness it didn't happen. So riotous acts that range from insurrections, like government overthrow, domestic violence, and 
when we think of domestic violence, usually in the 18th century, I'm, I'm not talking about, that's not to say that there might have been some form of domestic violence from within a home, but when I think of domestic violence in today's time, how about domestic terrorism? So when I think about, yes, the government's ability to, um, to have broad powers in times of emergency, how about the abilities to, yes, suppress riotous acts as well as uh, suppressing uh, domestic violence, a.k.a. domestic terrorism. But secondly, the U.S. Constitution would go about providing for a national army under the president's command, a.k.a. commander-in-chief, to giving Congress chief authority to nationalize state militias. Of course, we don't, you know, we don't call them state militias, but we might think of them now today as like modern-day National Guards. But at that time, they were referred to as state militias. And last but not least, the Constitution would go about prohibiting states from issuing their own bills of credit. So in other words, the states would no longer be allowed to issue their own currency. That currency now would be in the power of the federal government. Did the U.S. Constitution uh, benefit Boston and other seaport communities along the coast? Not just the coast of Massachusetts, but how about elsewhere for the 13 states at the time, like, say, Charleston, South Carolina, Savannah, Georgia, Wilmington, North Carolina, um, Norfolk, Virginia, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Baltimore, Maryland. I mean, the list goes on and on, but I'm just giving you all some good examples of how not just Boston and other um, mercantile towns in Massachusetts were benefiting, but was everybody else along the coast benefiting too? And the answer is yes. Seaport towns benefited greatly as their needs for long-distance trade became more demanding as the sign of the times started to change based upon the nation's new governing document. And what is, in speaking of, of uh, commerce, folks, what is one of Congress's powers? The right to regulate interstate and foreign commerce. You know, when I think of interstate, think of like the interstate highways in today's modern world. Interstate going, say, from Virginia to Pennsylvania. If it's intrastate, intra meaning from within, like, say, from point A to point B in Virginia, like, say, going from Richmond to Roanoke, Virginia. Were there a majority of uh, backcountry towns represented in January 1788 when Massachusetts delegates convened to debate the Constitution? Yes. However, uh, two-thirds of the backcountry towns opposed the Constitution. This is a good classic example right here of, of where those who would have lived in the backcountry would have been very fearful of the new uh, government's what you call the new central or um, national government's ability to have broad powers. But even some of our forefathers would came to the realization that, hey, they couldn't please everybody with this new document. It's like that saying in today's world, you can't please everybody. On one hand, your job may not be to please everyone. But even as Benjamin Franklin would say about the Constitution, he said the following, it may not, it's not the, it's not the most perfect of documents, but it's the, but it was the best we could come up with. In other words, okay, it may not have everything to your liking, but it's the best we could come up with, and it's the best 101 governing document that will guide us not only in the present, but perhaps for the future, and if there are changes that need to be made to it, then at least you all have a platform to work with. Without a platform, then uh, how can you make changes to a government that's not even uh, recognizable? It's just not possible. And there were 29 communities from the Massachusetts backcountry towns that uh, chose prominent insurgents to represent them at the ratifying convention. So <laughs> just when we thought the um, insurgents had uh, learned their lessons, there were still insurgents from these 29 communities, that is, prominent individual insurgents who um, made it be known that 
They may have liked some things about the document, but they didn't like everything else. Here's someone else that most of us probably would not know about, and I didn't know anything about him until I read this book. But who is George Richards Minot? Is he a native of Massachusetts? Yes. Whereabouts in Massachusetts is he a native of? Is he a native of Boston? Is he a native of uh, Worcester? Or is he a native of Amherst? The answer is Boston. He is a native Bostonian whom served as the house clerk, which made him have which made him have to fulfill governing elite individuals' needs. He was a member of the Boston Gentry. He was the youngest son of a prosperous merchant. He was a Harvard graduate. He became a lawyer instead of a merchant. In other words, he didn't follow in his father's footsteps. He decided to do something different. He served as secretary of the Massachusetts Convention, which approved the U.S. Constitution. Somebody had to do all that uh, note-taking, folks. Remember, there's no such thing as uh, computers back then, so you know somebody's got to take the note-taking, and it's in pen and ink. Well, what else makes George Minot unique, other than the fact that he um, was the uh, was the youngest son of a prosperous merchant and a member of Boston of the Bostonian gentry? He was the first to publish a book on Shays's Rebellion titled The History of the Insurrections in Massachusetts in the Year 1786 and the Rebellion Consequent Thereon. So, folks, we didn't have to wait 150 years or later just for someone to publish a modern-day book on Shays' Rebellion. George Richards Minot was the first to publish a book on this rebellion shortly after it happened. Minot viewed the regulation movement as a threat to his way of life. After all, remember, folks, the regulators were the ones who didn't like how, um, how the, um, those who governed were, would abuse their powers, especially the regulators uh, were the ones that frowned upon the Bostonian elite because they were the ones that had all the powers to govern. And not only did they have so much all the powers, they were abusing their powers to where people in the western part of the state or even on the outskirts of Boston who had no voices were the ones being left behind. So as for George Minot, yes, he, he saw his existing way of life as being threatened. He didn't like the fact that the outsiders were challenging his status quo. However, at the same time, uh, Mr. Minot was very worried about the state's reputation, including how people and rulers of Massachusetts would be judged by their fellow Americans, including history itself. So this man was thinking way ahead of his time and doing a lot of deep thinking to say, hey, what are people going to think of us not just five or ten years from now? What are they going to think of us 25 to 50 years from now. That may have seemed like broad thinking for its time, but he had every right to believe that, hey, do we want future generations to view Massachusetts as the state that allowed um, the United States to, to have almost fallen into complete uh, insolvency or into uh, complete disarray to where a United States may no longer have existed. Well, he had every reason to believe that, but I think if George Minot were alive today, he would be very happy to know that uh, most people have come to um, greatly appreciate how Massachusetts was the, um, the state that laid the foundations for American independence, although I don't know how his family, um, I don't know what side his family was on during the Revolution. Because even the, there were a handful of prominent Massachusetts families who did identify themselves with the crown. Do any of you all think George Minot ever presented Daniel Shays as a monster? Believe it or not, he didn't. I think it's fair to say that George Minot knew that Daniel Shays was not the sole perpetrator behind the rebellion. 
Although he knew that Daniel Shays himself was a newcomer to the area, and because he was a newcomer, he was trying to figure out where he belonged in the greater community. Yes, he served on the Committee of Safety, but I do believe it's fair to say that because of all that was going on around him, he felt that he needed to be a bigger part of the action in terms of letting it be known that, hey, I'm in the same boat as so many of my other fellow brethren brothers around me and because they are because they are experiencing conflict from within i'm experiencing it too i'm up to 12 pounds in debt and i've got creditors in my community after me let's keep in mind folks that the the, the relationship between creditors and debtors was not confined to just Boston and Western Massachusetts. It was a whole community-wide problem throughout the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. So for George Minot, he really um, focused heavily on the rank-and-file rebel followers whom he saw as the chief perpetrators of this um, rebellion he viewed these um, he viewed the rank and file rebel followers as disgruntled farmers whom were down on their luck, whom were viewed by the governing elite in Boston as unfit men capable of participating in government. I would give George Minot half truth on that, but the problem is that not everybody who rebelled was one hundred percent disgruntled. And not everyone who rebelled came from the lowest ranks of society. Uh, from the previous podcast where we discussed uh, towns, the towns like Waitley, Pelham, um, Colerain, Amherst, uh, just to name a few towns, uh, we talked about some prominent families who, had, who were well-to-do landowners. We debunked a myth. The rebellion was not confined to the lowest of lows of society. It was, it was a rebellion that involved all ranks of society. And those who did have land over 100 acres or more, I believe they could have been very capable of uh, being a part of the um, greater government in Massachusetts. The problem was that, the, in the eyes of the Bostonians, they didn't share the same ideals. So, how do we wrap up the uh, epilogue of Shays' rebellion? You know, there are those who, who respected why Daniel, Shea, Daniel Shays um, sold the sword that was given to him from the Marquis de Lafayette because he had financial issues that he needed to um, take into consideration and he felt that uh, by selling the sword it would erase debts. It did probably erase some debts, but it didn't erase what was left of him, what was left of his outstanding debts, given that he had 12 pounds of debt going into 1786. But there were those who bore resentment towards Daniel Shays. They felt that he was a traitor because he had sold a sword from a high-ranking officer whom stuck his neck out for Mr. Shays, only to be told that the sword was no longer in possession of the family. So it is fair to say that Daniel Shays, in my opinion, was a man who uh, was, was, it was a love-hate relationship for this man. The government needed someone to blame in Massachusetts. They felt that the best thing to do was to blame this man because he, in the eyes of the Bostonian elite, he had sold his state out because he had surrendered a sword for his service. Acts of rebellion happen for various reasons when it involves people whom have been oppressed for some time, but rebellion isn't confined to just one sector of society. Shays' rebellion happened because a select group of western Massachusetts families had become victims of circumstances beyond their control while fighting for independence from England to adjusting to new settings in the post-Revolutionary War era. Remember the Dickinsons, the Graveses, the Smiths, to name a few prominent families? While select families went about taking up arms against the state, many chose not to rebel by remaining neutral, which makes Shays' rebellion all the more unique. 
this event didn't produce mass rebellion, but the infamous incident brought men together from north to south with one intention, to replace the Articles of Confederation in hopes that the nation itself could be saved from the inevitable. And what is the inevitable, folks? Anarchy. Rebellion is both good and bad, but Shays's rebellion also reminds us that people from all economic backgrounds are impacted by decisions made upon governing rulers, and when government isn't sound over time, the inevitable is always bound to happen, even if rebellion becomes solution to unanswered problems. Well, folks, I have no doubts that all of you, my fellow 101 podcast listeners, came away learning more about Shays' Rebellion in eight episodes than you had probably learned in a lifetime before. And as I said earlier on, and I'll say it again, I strongly recommend reading this book, Shays' Rebellion, The American Revolution's Final Battle by Leonard L. Richards. Many of you all are wondering... Why should we read it if you covered so much in eight episodes? Well, there was a fair amount that I was not able to cover, but I covered to you all what I felt was appropriate and necessary. And I can admit myself, too, that while I may not have covered every detail, I did cover what was important to where you all came away learning more than what you had ever been previously taught in, in the school systems wherever you all may reside, whether it's in the United States or elsewhere around the world. Well, thank you for your time as always, and I will look forward to being back on the air again soon. And when I am back on the air again soon, we will be learning about something else that, um, that has been um, discussed somewhat frequently, but I do believe that it's important to discuss because, after all, if it's not discussed, I don't know who will discuss it. And when it doesn't get discussed, sometimes we forget the sacrifices that were made to ensure that whatever is in existence now will still exist not only 50 years from now, but 100 years from now and longer. Because anytime sacrifices are made, they are not only meant for the present, it's also meant for the future. Well, thank you for your time, as always, and I look forward to being back on the air again. And for those of you who know of anybody who wants to come um, do podcasting, tell them to come to Anchor. It's free. The opportunities are limitless. The results go beyond the sky's ceiling, and you just never know where these results go. Hey, I'm in 35 nations around the world. If, I have, if I've been able to amass this kind of success, any one of you all can do the same thing, too, if you put your mind to it. Thank you again, and thank you from the bottom of my heart. You all are the best. Take care.